The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this morning comes from Romans 10, 10 through 15. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Um, Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 10, that passage that Keila just read for us, Romans chapter 10. If you've been following along with us, which I hope you are, in our practice guides for this series, it's going to be on page 24 of your Lent guide. There's a place in there for the passage and for some teaching notes as well, page 24 in your Lent guide or Romans chapter 10, whatever you prefer. There are, I think, still a few of these available if you want to grab that out in the lobby. Don't hold me to it, but potentially. Uh, Romans chapter 10. I'm going to pray, and then we're just going gonna to get right into it. Uh, there's a lot we got to do today, and I'm just going to warn you up front. It's going to be very, very intellectually dense, and so I need you to just get your coffee if you need it. Do what you need to do. Just stay with me. I promise it'll pay off at the end. I just need to name some things for us as a community, okay? So we're going to get into it in a second. Let me pray. Ask the Spirit to be with us, and then we'll just jump right in. Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your word. Lord, would you even now silence our anxieties, quiet our minds. Lord, sufficient for today is the trouble. And so we don't want to be in tomorrow. We don't want to be in this week. We don't want to be even in this afternoon. Lord, we want to be in this moment with you. This is the moment you have for us. And so I pray, Lord, that we would be patient. That we would have open hearts. Lord, would you do what only you can do? Take your word, put it into our hearts by the power of your spirit such that we are forever changed. We don't want to waste this, Lord. Help us. We need you. Probably sings in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. Well, we are spending this season of Lent as a church talking about the spiritual practice of mission, which we defined last week, just by way of reminder, as demonstrating and proclaiming the gospel to people who don't yet know Jesus. Demonstrating with our lives and our actions and then proclaiming with our words the good news of Jesus to those who don't yet know him. And last week we laid a foundation for how we are going to grow into missional people. And I just want to put this out there. If you missed last week and you have not caught up, please, please, please go watch that. Go listen to it online. Do something to catch what we talked about. That message last week was pivotal to how we think about formation and change and sanctification in the life of our church. And so go catch it so you're not behind. But what we argued last week is that if we're going to be a people who become missional, join God in his work in the world, that's going to happen through truth, community, and practice empowered by the Holy Spirit, slowly over time, forming us into people who join 
what God is doing around us. But what I want to spend time today addressing is the barriers to that reality, the barriers to stepping into the mission of God. If you get convinced, I want to be a part of what God's doing in the world, what are all of the roadblocks that are going to come up and arise to keep you back from participating in God's mission to seek and save the lost? Or better yet, if you would be someone who would say, honestly, I'm not participating in the mission of God at all right now. What's keeping you from it? What are those barriers? What are those roadblocks that are holding you back from joining God and taking the gospel to the world? And so that's what I want to do from Romans 10 this morning. I want to highlight these barriers and then from the text, give us some ways to get through them. So Romans chapter 10, we're just going to dive right in at verse 9. Because, Paul writes to the church in Rome, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. That's a quote from the book of Isaiah. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Paul starts in this passage by referring back to an argument he's been making for the first nine chapters of the book of Romans. And that argument is simply this, the gospel is available to all people. He's been building this beautiful argument that, that he says it's for Jew and Greek, aka that's New Testament language for everybody. Everybody, according to the scriptures, is under the weight and curse of sin, and yet everybody is, is available to be saved by Christ. And he explains how this salvation comes about. He says it comes about through belief and through confession that Jesus is Lord and Jesus has risen from the dead. We are saved, according to the scriptures, through a, a core level. That's what the New Testament means by heart. It's the word cardia. It's the, the operating system within us. The deepest reality of who we are has surrendered to the reality of who Christ is and what he has done for us. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We are surrendered with our whole selves to Jesus as both Savior and Lord. And then he continues, okay, if salvation comes through calling on the name of the Lord, then that leads for Paul to some questions and some very fair questions. If salvation comes, is guaranteed for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, then he's got to ask some questions. Verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And now how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So look at these questions that Paul asks. If salvation comes through calling on Jesus, how can they call on Jesus if they don't believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they haven't heard about him? And how can they hear about him without someone preaching? Now just a quick clarification on that word preaching. When the biblical authors use the word preaching, they don't necessarily mean stand up on a Sunday morning behind a podium and give a message. That, this act that, we're, that I'm doing right now, is actually in the New Testament much more often referred to as teaching, not as preaching. It's one of the requirements for the role of a pastor in 1 Timothy 3, able to teach. It's one of the things the early church devoted themselves to in Acts 2, the apostles' teaching. Fun fact, this is actually why if you go on our website or you hear us most often, we will describe this not as preaching, but as teaching. 
That's actually the more accurate New Testament word for what we're doing right now. When Paul says preaching here, he means its most simplest definition, which is simply to declare or to announce. It's to inform someone of something that they aren't yet aware of, to be a bringer and a herald of good news. And so when Paul says, how can they hear without someone preaching? This is not a rallying cry to raise up more pastors within the church, although that's good and we want more pastors. First and foremost, this is a emphasis on the call on the lives of all believers to announce the good news of Jesus to those around them. So Paul says, how can someone hear about Jesus and then believe in him and then call on him and then be saved unless everyone within the church takes seriously their sending and burden and identity to be a proclaimer of the good news? That's what he's getting after. Then he says the final question, and how can all of that happen unless someone is sent to do that? Paul here is addressing very simply the mission of all followers of Jesus, that we have been sent by King Jesus himself to go into our various spheres of life and influence and friend groups and workplaces and families and neighborhoods and all of that to declare, to open our mouths and say the good news of Jesus to those who don't know him. That's what we mean when we say joining the mission of God. Now, Romans 10 is an awesome and beautiful and weighty reality. Paul is very clear. They will not believe, they will not be saved unless someone goes and tells them. That's the connection he's trying to make for us. If you want people to follow Jesus, believe in Jesus, it's only going to happen if people are sent and then preached so they can hear and they can believe and they can call. That's the trajectory he's walking out for us. And for generations and generations of followers of Jesus, passages like this one have been a rallying cry as marching orders to participate in God's mission. So for centuries, Christians have heard passages like Romans 10 and others and used them as fuel to leverage their lives for the kingdom of God. But I think what previous generations heard as a rallying cry, some of us today may hear a little bit differently. When we think about the weightiness of how can they hear and believe unless we proclaim, many of us don't feel stirred in our souls as much as we feel a bit of reluctance or hesitation. Maybe others of us have a good bit of anxiety or worry begin to rise in, up within us when we think about the mission of God. Maybe still others, some feelings of shame or guilt because we know how far our lived realities are from this teaching in the scriptures. And so we hear from Paul, go and proclaim the gospel, and we're hit with this overwhelming sense, for lack of a better word, of angst. Sort of this just kind of uneasiness within us that sees the difference or the disconnect or the gap between what we so clearly see in the scriptures, both in the, the teachings and in the, the, the life of the early church, and yet we see a gap between that and our lived reality of our lives, what we believe, what we even desire to step into. And I mean, hopefully we can be honest about this, but when you heard that our Lent practice this year was mission, I would guess that at least some of us were like, oh, that. Like, can't we just do prayer again? Or like, what about Sabbath? I love Jesus' teachings on Sabbath. A day off? That sounds great. Or okay, compromise, fasting, right? Like fasting, let's meet in the middle. It's kind of difficult, but not mission, right? Not this. I don't want to participate in this. Why this? And I think that's due to a few reasons, and that's what I want to address for a little bit this morning. Why do these hesitancies, this angst, rise up within us when we think about participating in the mission of God. Well, I think there's, there's three specific barriers, three specific roadblocks as we try to think about joining the mission of God, demonstrating and proclaiming the gospel to those who don't yet know Jesus. Let's just talk about these for a little bit. The first one will definitely, definitely be the longest. 
The first barrier to joining the mission of God is the barrier of this cultural moment. The first barrier to joining the mission of God, what keeps us in that angst of disconnection, is the barrier of this cultural moment. The culture that you and I live in is not naturally going to default us to be gospel sharers. Now, we say our culture a lot. Like you, you probably use that phrase. You've heard that phrase, like the culture, our culture. Let me just talk for a minute, stay with me, about what we mean when we say our culture. When we say our culture is not friendly to us sharing the gospel, let me explain what I mean by our culture. There's a whole bunch of labels. Let me give you the theories, and then I'll work it into your life, I promise. When I say our culture, first what I mean is that we live in a postmodern society. We live in a postmodern society. A postmodern society is one where each person or group of people gets to define their, quote, own truth, their own ethics, their own values, and really their own reality. But it's also one where none of those truths or ethics or values or realities are inherently any more valid than any others. So there's no longer truth as an absolute. Rather, you have your truth and I have mine. And there's a deep suspicion because of this reality, if not distaste, for anyone who would claim that their truth is absolute truth and others who disagree with them are wrong because tolerance is the highest law of the land in a postmodern society. Your truth is good for you. My truth is good for me. Let's just agree to disagree. Second thing about our culture you have to understand is that we live in what's called the age of authenticity. We live in the age of authenticity. This means that ultimate meaning and value is found not outside of us in some deity or in the roles that we are born into or our family of origin or, or our neighborhood or whatever the case may be. Rather, meaning and value and identity comes from within ourselves. Self-discovery and self-expression become the highest goal, which means no one and nothing can or should tell you what to do or who to be, including any deity and God. This is Charles Taylor who came up with this phrase. This is how he describes it. He says, by age of authenticity, I mean the understanding of life, which emerges within the romantic expressivism of the late 18th century, that each one of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity, and that it is important to find and live out one's own, notice this, as against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from outside by society or the previous generation or religious or political authority. So what the age of authenticity means is no longer is your trajectory in life settled because of where you're born and the family you're born into. If you're born 200 years ago, if your family is full of blacksmiths, you're a blacksmith. If your family is full of farmers, guess what? You're a farmer. And if you rebelled against that identity, that was frowned upon because you are not stepping into the role imposed on you from the outside. But now we all live in the age of authenticity. My identity, who I want to be, what I want to be, just comes from within myself. And here's the problem with it, is if the full weight of identity shaping comes from within you, then what does the full weight of identity failing land on? Also you. If you're the one who has to set up your identity in the world, what happens when your identity fails? If you have to build identity for yourself, your career, your relationships, your status, your wealth, whatever the case may be, what happens when that identity-shaping part of you lets you down? This is what we're in, the age of authenticity. Third is secularism and disenchantment. Secularism and disenchantment. We've talked about secularism a lot. Secularism, a secular culture, just means having no spiritual belief is now more popular than having spiritual belief in our society. And that leads to disenchantment, which simply means the majority of our culture no longer thinks the spiritual realm is real or meaningful in any way of, for my life. And so it's now more popular for me to be a nun, N-O-E, 
N-O-N-E-S, just to be clear, than it is to have any sort of spiritual belief. And then we're, we're lulled into this way of life that doesn't need the transcendent or the spiritual or any form of out there reality, right? Because of technology, because of advancements in medication, because we live in the wealthiest generation in human history, we can go about our lives in a semi-controllable way, devoid of anything supernatural or transcendent. So just for example, as one pastor says, there's no need to pray for daily bread, like Jesus teaches us to do in Matthew 7, when you can just door dash for a loaf. There's no need to pray for healing when we can just go see a doctor and take some medicine. And certainly, obviously, we're not against DoorDash or medicine. All I'm saying is this defaults us in the West to a non-transcendent way of life. Everything that's real is just what's right in front of me. Good so far? Sweet. Two more. Moralistic therapeutic deism. I asked if we're good. Let me break this down for you. Moralistic, therapeutic, deism. Let's work it backwards. Deism. If God exists, therapeutic, he exists to make me happy. Moralistic, if I'm a good person. That's the default belief of most who would still call themselves Christian in America today. That if God exists, deism, he exists to make me happy, therapy, if I'm a good person, moralism. And so if my life is going poorly, that means that I've either messed something up and I just need to get my life back on track, or God no longer exists, or he's letting me down, or he's not actually good. Instead of a robust framework of life, like people in the world have had for thousands of years that suffering is a part of walking as a human. But this is the default of Christianity in our world today, that the ultimate goal for me is to be happy, pain-free, a moral life, and God exists as the problem solver who is absent from my life unless there's trouble. Let me give you one more. Globalism and pluralism. Globalization and pluralism. We have access to the world at our fingertips. The other side of the globe is now a 12-hour plane ride away. The beliefs of the other side of the globe is 12 seconds away. This was unheard of even just a few decades ago to have this much exposure to different viewpoints and opinions and thoughts about the afterlife and thoughts about the current life. So many different beliefs on how to live. And all of that, all right, postmodernism, Age of authenticity, secularism and disenchantment, moralistic therapy, deism, globalization, pluralism. It's a lot of theory. All of that, let's just stew it all together, becomes what happens in our culture, which is summarized in three words. Privatize your faith. That's how you summarize the, the end goal of all of these things. Privatize your faith. Keep it to you. It's great if you believe what you believe. Just, that's good for you. Just keep it to yourself. This is the barrier of this cultural moment. Now, that's all theories. Let me show you what this looks like in your life. You have an agnostic coworker, or a Buddhist neighbor, or a Muslim colleague, or a grew up in church, now spiritual but not religious friend. And the second you even consider talking with them about Jesus, all of these doubts start popping into your head that sound like this. Let me name them. First, oh, who am I to think that my truth is any truer than theirs? It's postmodernism. Well, they seem really happy, and it seems like their belief system is working for them. Age of authenticity. They're probably going to think I'm stupid, that I would think some guy 2,000 years ago could rise from the dead. Secularism and disenchantment. Well, God's not going to punish them if they don't believe in Jesus, as long as they're really sincere about their attempts at faith. After all, he just wants all of us to be happy. Moralistic therapeutic deism. Well, who am I to consider that my belief system is any more valid than their belief system? I'm probably just a Christian because of where and when I was born. Globalism and pluralism. 
Even if we know deep down, believing and calling on Jesus is the only way to be saved, we don't want to be arrogant or self-righteous or come across as pushy. And that, church, is the discipleship power of our cultural moment, working against you sharing the gospel, getting us to think, well, this whole Jesus thing is true for me, but that doesn't mean it's true for them. And this is why, as I shared a few weeks ago, a recent study by the Barna Group found that while nearly all Christians agree that part of their following of Jesus means being a witness— Those same Christians, nearly half of them believe it's wrong to share their beliefs, hoping that someone will also share them. So even though most Christians would say, I'm supposed to share my faith, nearly half would also say it's morally wrong to share in such a way that I desire them to actually change their mind. Not that they'd rather not do it because it's uncomfortable, but that it's actually morally wrong and evil. That we're doing what is right by remaining silent about our faith in Jesus. And so here's what I would argue is happening here. There is a conviction that we should share our faith with other people that is colliding with a worldview, that we should be good, Western, relativistic, postmodern, pluralistic people, and the worldview is winning. That's the first. The next two are much shorter. Number two, the barrier of the enemy. The barrier of the enemy. So not only is our cultural moment working against us living on mission, so are the spiritual forces of evil. We believe unapologetically in a spiritual realm here at Citizens with spiritual forces of good, the kingdom of God, and spiritual forces of evil, what the scriptures call the kingdom of darkness. And those two kingdoms have been competing and fighting for a really long time that has a direct impact on all of our lives, including on salvation. And the kingdom of darkness, ruled by the Satan or the devil or the enemy of God, is seeking to keep people from trusting in Jesus. This is how the scriptures talk about it. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Here's what the text is saying there, that the enemy of God and his people is blinding non-believers from seeing the truth of the glory of Christ. So here's what this means. That friend of yours you've been sharing the gospel with for years, you've been faithful to love them and serve them and proclaim the gospel to them, and they would say to you, that all makes sense, but they still won't surrender their life to Jesus. That's the barrier of the enemy. Or that coworker who was so friendly to you, and then the minute you bring up church, now gives you the cold shoulder, or feels and acts awkward and weird around you, or starts sort of distancing themselves from you, that's the barrier of the enemy. When you're trying to share the gospel and you have this sense, it feels like there's all of this resistance in my heart. Like, I just can't get my words out. It's the barrier of the enemy. So that shrinks us back from sharing our faith because we tried that and it just didn't seem to work or, well, they just don't seem interested or it made things weird. And we have to remember our battle is not just an intellectual one. If I just say the right thing, then they'll believe. Our battle is not just a relational one. If I just love them enough, I'm friendly enough, then they'll believe. But rather a spiritual one. The spiritual forces of good and evil are battling over the souls of humanity, and realizing that can make us feel like, well, what am I supposed to do? (laughs) How do I go up against the enemy who's blinding the minds of unbelievers? So the broader culture is working against us. The enemy is working against us. And in case we think it's all just out there, unfortunately for us, we are also working against us. And that's the third barrier, the barrier of the self. We get in our own way. We have all of those internal resistances and hesitancies to joining the mission of God. And the barrier of the self can look like so many things. Let me just quickly name what I think are the two most prominent. For some of us, the barrier of the self means that our love of this world is keeping us from the mission of God. 
Let me go into this a little bit. We would say, I just don't have time. It's a time issue when really it's an idolatry issue. We have no energy or time to leverage for joining God and building his kingdom because we are way too busy building our own. Our priorities are wrapped up in comfort and success and achievement and money and status, you name it. And so we think things like, how could I possibly find time to join God's mission in the world when we have no trouble finding 60 hours a week for our job? Finding time for that new show on Netflix or finding time to get to the gym five or six times a week or you fill in the blank. And listen to me, nothing is more revealing than what you love than your calendars and your budgets. That's what I love about calendars and budgets. They cannot lie. Well, they can, but you know what I mean. Your bank account can't lie. Your budget, if you do it, can lie. <laughs> your calendar doesn't lie. Your bank statement doesn't lie. What you care about is revealed in your time and your money. And so some of us have no care molecules left to give to advancing the kingdom of God because we've given all our care molecules to advancing the kingdom of self. Or to say it one way, as, as one pastor says it, we have no energy to proclaim the excellencies of Christ because we're too busy proclaiming the excellencies of our career, of our spouse, or of our children. All good things, but when we make them the ultimate thing, they keep us from the mission of God. For others, the barrier of the self keeping us from the mission of God is simply our desperate need to be liked and approved of by everyone around us. We are way too caught up as a society, but also as Christians and what other people think or will think about us. What if they think I'm weird? What if they make jokes? What if they cut me off? What if I don't get invited? What if I'm isolated? What if I'm not in anymore? What if I offend them? Listen to me, even our fear that they'll ask a question we don't know how to answer, right? That's like, I'm like, why don't you engage in the mission of God? Everybody says, well, what if they ask a question? I'm not prepared. I'm not an apologist. I'm not an evangelist. Like, what if they ask a question I can't answer about the Bible or about God? Even that at a core level, most of the time, not all the time, most of the time is not us saying, I don't want to say something wrong so they don't believe. It's actually us just being afraid of looking dumb, which is still us desiring people's approval. We long for that. We long to be loved instead of settling our belovedness in the Father such that it does not matter what they think of us if we are winsomely and lovingly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. And the way we encourage one another in this, unfortunately, just reinforces this desire to be approved of because we say things like, it won't be awkward. If they're your friend, they'll still respect you. They'll still like you. Instead of looking at the New Testament going, and what if they don't? Is the glory of God still worth the loss of reputation? Is the glory of God still worth you looking weird or rude or awkward? So if those are the barriers, cultural moment, the enemy, the self, or in other words, the world, the flesh, the devil, how do we begin to press into those and to not lose heart? How do we begin to overcome these barriers so that we can step into the rest of what's to come in the next four weeks? We'll look back at Romans 10. I think it speaks directly to these barriers and how to fight against them. Take a deep breath. We're doing all right. Everybody's okay. First, to fight the cultural barrier, number one, remember the exclusivity of Jesus. To fight the cultural barrier, you must remember the exclusivity of Jesus. Look at what Paul says in Romans 10, 12 through 13. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be Save. Now I want you to notice this. Not everyone who calls on a Lord, everyone who calls on the Lord, the one true God. The belief that we must go and proclaim the gospel is driven by the fact that Jesus is Lord of all. 
that he is the one true king, he is the one true God, that the way of Jesus, church, is not just true for you. It, is, it isn't just your truth. It is the truth. It's not subjectively true. It is objectively true. And God's people have thought this and claimed this for forever. Let me just show you a few examples. Psalm 96. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. In other words, all these other gods gods are false. They're man-made creations. They are not real, but the Lord made the heavens. In case you you think this is just some parts of scripture, Jesus, he's inclusive. Look at what he says. I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or Acts chapter 4, the early church preaching and proclaiming there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. A fair reading of the scriptures and the claims of Jesus does not let you believe in multiple ways to God. Sincere faith is not what saves you. Do you know that? Sincere faith, I have faith, is not what saves you. Sincere faith in the person and work of Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection is what saves you. Sincerity does not get you eternal life with God. Faith in Jesus is what grants you eternal life with God. This is how one theologian, John Dixon, says it. The most basic doctrine in all of the Bible is the claim. There is only one God to whom all people owe their allegiance. Promoting the gospel to the world is more, therefore, than a rescue mission, though it is certainly that. It is a reality mission. It's a reality mission. It's alerting people to what is real. So we must remember that proclaiming the gospel is not trying to win people to a belief system they can consider. It's declaring what is true. It's declaring what is reality. Now, maybe you hear that and you still think, okay, isn't that kind of arrogant? Isn't it dangerous to say that our belief system is the one true belief system and that others aren't true? Again, our culture has shaped us into being very uncomfortable with assertions like that. But here's, let me just be honest, where our culture is dead wrong. It is not arrogant to simply say that something is true. Do you know that? Claiming something is true is not arrogance. For example, for a very simple example, if I said to you, Vi Lyles is the mayor of Charlotte, that's just a fact. It's just true. She is. If you came up to me and you were like, well, that's kind of arrogant and presumptuous of you, it's like, that'd be weird for you to respond that way. Because she's the mayor. Like, it's just, it's true. It's not my truth that you can just be like, well, I think it's this person. It's like, it's just not. It's factually not that person. It's Vi Lyles. You know that if you walk through the Charlotte airport, you hear it a million times. We know that it's Vi Lyles, right? It's not arrogant to say that something is true. Some people will tell you that it is, but it's not. This is G.K. Chesterton. He, he, he says it so skillfully this way. He says, what we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself but undoubting about the truth, this has been exactly reversed. We are on the road to producing a race of men too mentally modest to believe in the multiplication table. Just notice that. We were meant to be doubtful about ourselves, but undoubting about the reality of God in the world. But now it's reversed. So we have to disbelieve the cultural narrative that lies to us and says claiming ultimate truth is arrogant. Now, you can say true things in an arrogant way, but saying true things is not arrogant. You see the difference there? It's not buy into the lie that we're doing what's noble by keeping our mouths shut and privatizing our faith. Second, to fight the enemy, we must remember the power of Jesus. To fight this cultural moment, we remember the exclusivity of Jesus. There's no other name under heaven by which we are saved. To fight the enemy, we remember the power of Jesus. I love the certainty of Paul's words here in verse 9. You will be saved. 
or verse 10, believes and is justified, confesses and is saved. Or verse 11, will not be put to shame. Or verse 13, will be saved. There's a confidence in his words here. If you confess, if you believe, salvation is a guarantee. There's no maybes in the confession and belief category. If you confess, if you believe, you will be saved, period. That's the power of our God. That's the confidence we have as we face the enemy who clouds the minds of unbelievers, that the power of the Holy Spirit is able to open the eyes of the blind. The power of the Holy Spirit is able to shine light in darkness. The power of the Holy Spirit is the one who can make dead people alive and that he can and does and will save. And here's what's so liberating and freeing about that, that the call on our lives is not to save, it's to proclaim. Do you know that freedom? That the goal is not to go out there and do a bunch of things to try to do it all myself and get some people to Jesus and say the right thing and have all the right arguments and win them over. That's not the goal. The goal is to be faithful to proclaim so that the Holy Spirit can do what only he can do and wake them up to Jesus. So we proclaim in faithfulness and trust, remembering that Jesus is going to continue to do what he's been doing from the beginning, seeking and saving the lost. That's what he does. Third, last one. To fight the self-barrier, we must remember the plan of Jesus. We're going to go into this a lot next week, but look back at verse 14. Remember the plan of Jesus. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? So he's like, all right, in order for them to call and be saved, they got to believe. In order for them to believe, they have to hear. And this is where we want to say, all right, Lord, send an angel. Open the clouds, speak. Like, just do it. And then terrifyingly to us, this is what he says, and how are they to hear without someone preaching, without a human opening their mouth? And how are those humans to preach unless they are sent? And here's just what's so shocking about the Bible. I would choose a different plan probably. (laughs) I know my own brokenness, my own insecurities, my own fear, my own inabilities, my own lack of courage, but God knows what he is doing, and his plan is always better, and his plan A, from the beginning, to take the gospel to the world has always been his people. Always been his people. Claiming the gospel, going to where they are, preaching the good news of Jesus, because salvation is found in Christ and Christ alone by calling on his name, but how can they call if they don't believe? How can they believe if they don't hear? And how can they hear without a real-life human in their life proclaiming the gospel? How can we proclaim unless we believe against all barriers that God has sent us, that we are his plan? Again, more on that, how to do that next week. Here's where I want to close us today is just kind of talking about where we're going this week. So we've got our practice guides. If you've got it in front of you, you'll see it there on page 25, sorry, 26, Uh, our practice this week is just to identify those barriers. It's a little bit of a self-evaluation where you'll just talk about how freely do I share the gospel and what are the the main things that are getting in the way for me joining God and his mission in the world. And then what you're going to do is you're not just going to sit in those lies. You're going to actually fight them with the reality of God's word. So you're going to look at, okay, here's the barriers keeping me. And then here's what God's word directly says to combat those barriers. And then in your group time this week, you're going to help each other think of next steps to not just sit in that barrier, well, here's the issue, here's the problem, here's what keeps me from living on mission. You're actually going to help one another seek freedom and talk about next steps for getting over those barriers and joining the mission of God. And again, we change through truth, practice, and community, not just the reality that we should push against the barriers, but we actually learn to, to step against them by the power of the Spirit in our everyday lives, knowing here's the good news. Let me just end with verse 13, Romans 10. 
This is the promise for this whole series. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's our hope. That's why we talk about mission. That's why we're stepping into this together is because we believe, but by calling on the name of Jesus, you will not be saved. But the promise is everyone who does will be. We'll spend eternity with King Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you and we need you. Lord, we've got all of these reasons, all these barriers for why we're not engaging in the mission of God. Lord, all of these pressures from the cultural moment that makes us believe the lie we shouldn't. It's wrong. Maybe it's not the truth. All those questions, Lord. We've got the barriers of the enemy. He's blinding the minds of unbelievers. We've got the barrier of ourselves just running after all of these things we think give us life that busy us up and drain us. And so, Lord, we need you. We need your spirit. Help us to push against these barriers, to not be content letting them win, to not be content letting them have the final say, but to be willing to step in courage and boldness and power and life. Lord, we are powerless to change ourselves. We need your Holy Spirit, Lord. Help us. Probably sings in Christ's name. All God's people said, Amen.